Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, this is episode 144 of Historically Thinking. My guest today is Jeremy D. Popkin, the William T. Bryan Professor of History at the University of Kentucky. Professor Popkin is the author of numerous books, including On the Press and Revolutionary France, The Haitian Revolution, and The Story of Historiography. On his most recent book is A New World Begins, The History of the French Revolution, and is the subject of today's conversation. Professor Popkin, welcome to Historically Thinking. I'm very glad to have this uh, chance to talk to you. So this is a um, a book that can only be written with decades of familiarity with, with the topic. Um, I was thinking, uh, this has made me think a lot about, probably also thinking of your book, uh, Herodotus, From Herodotus to HNet. It's made me think a lot about uh, the French Revolution and the sort of uh, generative force it's had on Western historiography, which we can get to. Um, but we've got this amazingly uh, complex events um, with radically different interpretations and from that from the very moment on through the historiography to the historiography of the French Revolution to about 10 minutes ago we often have radically different interpretations of, of the same events so I, I'm curious uh, as we get into this um, did you just go through your notes from the last uh, 30 or 40 years and um, and, and put them together how did you, how did you even begin to tackle this book um, what, when did you decide you had to write this book? Well, I uh, decided about uh, five years ago that I would like to try to write a new uh, co uh, comprehensive history of the French Revolution that would be accessible to uh, the general public, uh, not aimed primarily at uh, college students or other college professors. Um, I have written a textbook about the uh, French Revolution that uh, has been uh, around for quite a while. So uh, at first I thought, all I have to do to write this longer book is uh, take each sentence in the textbook, uh, add three more sentences, and we'll be done. But I discovered <laughs> that it was going to be uh, very different. Uh, in a textbook, uh, students and teachers want uh, things to be very clear, not too complicated, uh, to make it obvious what's going to be on the test. For this kind of book, I knew uh, I had to motivate readers to want to uh, follow the story. I had to work much harder to bring the uh, characters like uh, Mirabeau and uh, Robespierre and Marie Antoinette uh, to life for my readers. Uh, so I had to go out looking for uh, sources uh, that in many cases I hadn't uh, been familiar with myself before. What were some of those sources? Um, I uh, spent uh, much more time than I should have probably, for example, reading Marie Antoinette's correspondence. And uh, I became drawn into this story of a woman who became queen as a young teenager, uh, who uh, was stuck in an unhappy marriage, and then found herself uh, having to uh, become a tough-minded uh, politician 
playing a very difficult hand and ultimately a losing one during the revolution, but showing a surprising skill and determination at what she did. Uh, amongst the revolutionaries, was there anyone that became more important to you or that you reevaluated as you, as you thought through events once, one more time? I really had to think uh, afresh about almost all the important personalities of the revolution. In a textbook, you can just say that Mirabeau was a charismatic politician. In this kind of book, I had to really think about what did that mean back then? What was it about him that uh, made such a strong impression on his contemporaries? And uh, I had to think very hard about uh, Robespierre and uh, how to explain how this man could both be such an eloquent spokesman for the democratic principles that still define democracy today, and also uh, an advocate of the drastic policies we associate with the reign of terror. Mm -hmm. Yeah, your Robespierre uh, is uh, a new one to me, and it, it, he, ma he made me think, and you made me think about him in a, in a fresh way. Um, well, that's uh, good. That's which, what I was hoping yeah, uh, the book yeah. would do. You um, have two characters. I meant to get to this later, but let's the two um, two friends. The uh, young men, who, uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, which is a lovely uh, way of uh, through line through these events. Could you describe Gujo and Tissot? Yes, uh, I discovered uh, these uh, two young men who became caught up in the revolution uh, totally devoted themselves to the Jacobin cause. Uh, Jean-Marie Goujon and his very good friend, Pierre-Francois Tissot. Uh, and uh, I thought the, the fate of the two men was an interesting uh, insight into the different ways individuals were affected by the revolution. Goujon, who evidently somewhat like Mirabeau was a charismatic figure, goes in just a couple of years from being an unknown law student to uh, directing the effort to uh, secure food supplies for the population of France during the Reign of Terror. He becomes a deputy to the National Convention. And then during one of the crises in the convention, he takes the losing side and winds up being tried and executed. Uh, his friend Tissot, who accompanies him through all these uh, dramas in the French Revolution, lives on until the uh, middle of the 19th century. And I thought it was a way of showing the kind of idealism that Goujon exemplified, how that uh, uh, made the revolution succeed. Uh, but Tissot's uh, survival, the fact that uh, he lived so much longer after the revolution, gives us another insight into how those uh, ideals of the revolution survived even after the defeats they suffered uh, under Napoleon and some of the regimes in the 19th century. Yes. Um, we'll get back to both of them. Um, because uh, especially that moment of Goujon's uh, death, which is, yeah. uh, it, it struck me, of course, that um, I think, I, I suspect, uh, even for someone who can remember taking a class in the French Revolution as an undergraduate, that in some ways the French Revolution sort of ends maybe when Robespierre is guillotined. Um, 
And of course, I found there's... in writing about it that uh, you really have to work to try to sustain people's interests in the subject yes. after the uh, execution of Robespierre. But the many histories of the French Revolution that end with the execution of Robespierre leave readers with the impression that uh, the revolution uh, destroyed itself, that uh, the execution of Robespierre shows that uh, the whole thing had been kind of a catastrophic mistake. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought it was important to say something about the years that followed uh, and to show that the rise of Napoleon, for example, was not inevitable. It was not a response to a crisis for uh, for which a dictatorship was the only possible solution. So I, I didn't want to uh, stop the book there. Uh, I wanted to take readers into these uh, often forgotten years of the uh, Thermidorian period and the directory, as we call them in the uh, history books, and uh, mm. give them a better sense of uh, how Napoleon, in my view, chose to uh, disavow many of the uh, achievements of the revolution, even when it wasn't really necessary to do so. And how he preserved certain aspects of it that we might um, we might miss amidst the imperial eagles and honeybees and all the rest of it. Um, um, he did, although had he lasted much longer the number of things we would say he preserved from the revolution, I think, would have gotten smaller and smaller. Doubtless. Um, but so, it, so I guess this gets us to the what, one uh, essential task for historians is also to figure out when to begin and end. Um, yes. And the beginning and ending of the French Revolution, as, as we've just discussed, the ending can be uh, controversial. And certainly the, the actual history is very different depending on where you decide to end it. Uh, 1789 true. is different if you end the story in 1794 than if you end it, say, with Napoleon's coronation or even with, say, the, the fall of the second, uh, his second, uh, after his return. Um, where would you begin the narrative of the French, where do you begin the narrative of the French Revolution? Um, I begin it uh, more or less at the, the middle of the uh, 18th century when I think we can see some uh, important uh, changes in French society that may not have made the revolution inevitable, but they made it possible. Mm -hmm. uh, one is the that's deepening. A, that's a very nice distinction. Excuse me. That's a very nice distinction. I have to remember that it made yeah. it possible, if not inevitable. Yeah. Uh, yes, I didn't want to uh, write a history of the French Revolution that sounds as if it was all pre-programmed. That uh, once you push the button, at some date. Uh, everything was uh, sort of fated to go the way it did. I wanted to uh, help readers see that often uh, there were alternatives, things could have gone a different direction. But to go back to your question about where does uh, the book start, uh, in the middle of the 18th century, uh, we see the French monarchy digging itself into a deeper and deeper uh, financial hole uh, in large part because of the extremely expensive Seven Years' War, which we think of in the um, United States as the French and Indian War, in its efforts to um, solve the financial crisis and find new resources, the monarchy itself uh, starts uh, proposing big changes uh, in French society, such as diminishing the privileges of the nobility. That 
starts public discussions about uh, do we let the government sort of use arbitrary powers to impose new taxes, or do we need a um, system of representative government? And uh, another big change that we can see in the um, by the middle of the 18th century, uh, people in all classes of French society are thinking less, you might say, about uh, their eternal salvation and religious issues, and they're thinking more about uh, how could my life be improved here and now economically, how could I have more opportunities, how could I get uh, more respect, and uh, that is going to lead to a questioning of the absolute monarchy, the authority of the church, and uh, that uh, too is an important part of the background of the French Revolution. But I wanted to sketch those developments out rapidly for readers. Uh, some of the books about the French Revolution, the revolution doesn't actually start till you're halfway through <laughs> the book. Uh, I was determined to uh, get to the storming of the Bastille faster than that. So if if we wanted to do a... <clears throat> If if you those are it, it, would there be any other sort of immediate causes of the revolution? I guess the immediate cause is that um, the the, fi the financial crisis is so bad that Louis the Sixteenth has to call a parliament. Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, that by uh, seventeen eighty eight, uh, Louis's ministers inform him uh, that uh, the uh, piggy bank is completely empty, and uh, if he doesn't want to. Uh, declare royal bankruptcy, he is going to have to somehow or other uh, get the um, right to uh, impose new taxes. And uh, so uh, paradoxically, it's Louis XVI, you could say, who really sets the revolution in motion when he summons the States uh, General and uh, he invites the entire population for the first time uh, to tell him what they think should be done about uh, France's crisis and uh, also to suggest any other reforms and changes that they would like to see. And boy, do they have answers for him. They have answers. And as you pointed out earlier, he uh, even a few years earlier, maybe even at that moment, he could have done something else. He could have been like the Emperor Joseph in Austrian or uh, Catherine the Great and made himself into an enlightened despot. Um, That's right. He, uh, he chose to do this. Know, just, uh, yeah, we know from particularly some of the recent uh, biographic uh, research about Louis XVI. Uh, he was not a stupid man, and he was not a uh, ill-intentioned man, but uh, he was not a very decisive character. He couldn't bring himself to think that uh, maybe in order to preserve my kingdom, I really need to transform the monarchy and take the initiative in doing that. Yeah. So he calls um, that parliament, and that begins in what, what, what time? What, well, what the, uh, the States General that he summons uh, convenes at the beginning of May in 1789. So everything happens so quickly. It's, it's hard to fathom how quickly it happens. Um, these epical events are happening month to month to month to month. That's part on. of what makes a uh, revolution, any revolution, so yeah. uh, dramatic. Uh, history seems to be speeded up during the period of the French Revolution. Journalists endlessly repeated that one year in a revolution is like a century in normal times. Mm -hmm. Could you um, 
summarize what, what we regard as the major sort of inflection points or phases of the revolution? Let's just take this up to Sir Napoleon's session, this first council. What would um, be the phases and the, and the sort of the, the moment where that phase began? Well, I would say uh, the first phase is with the uh, convocation of the Estates General, its transformation, the deputies transform it into a national assembly claiming the power to make new laws for France, and the storming of the Bastille shows that the king won't be able to uh, stop them. He doesn't have the uh, military force to halt them. Uh, and then as I was thinking in advance about your question about turning points, uh, there is a period of uh, great optimism for a few months in 1789 when the uh, Declaration of the Rights of uh, Man and Citizen is drafted and people are thinking uh, things are going great. Everybody is in agreement with the direction things are going. Mm -hmm. But already in, within a year in 1790, we can start to see some very uh, serious problems beginning to arise. The uh, unintended consequences of the reform of the church that gets launched that year, for example, are going to split the country for many, many years. Uh, <laughs> certainly, uh, and these conflicts get more and more intense until in the summer of 1792, uh, we have the country engaged in a war with the other monarchies of Europe, uh, the revolutionaries on one side, the conservatives on the other. We have the overthrow of the constitutional monarchy that had been created in 1789, we go into the more radical phase of the French Revolution that has gone down in uh, history as the reign of terror. Uh, and then, uh, as we already discussed, uh, in the summer of 1794, two years later, we get the overthrow of Robespierre, the end of the reign of terror, the start of a this period of five years from 1794 to Napoleon's coup d'etat, in 1799 uh, of a sort of struggle over what can be salvaged from the revolution and uh, what uh, has proved to be unworkable. Uh, with Napoleon's seizure of power, however, the um, question of who's going to decide about that uh, gets decided. Napoleon is going to make the decisions largely uh, and impose them the way he wants. And in my view, uh, we move rather drastically away from the uh, direction the revolution had started. Well, let me ask you a few um, questions about certain of those of those points. So sure. hopefully that this interests people further in, in looking at the book. Um, why is the storming of the Bastille important? Um, it struck me again reading uh, "A New World Begins" that you know, there's not many people in it. Um, is it simply because it's a symbol of royal power? I mean, it's it, it, it curious. Yes, it had tremendous symbolic importance, even though its practical uh, importance as a fortress was uh, almost nil. Uh, but uh, when uh, a crowd in the streets can uh, seize and uh, destroy a, a royal fortress, overwhelm its uh, military defenders, uh, your government has lost its ability to sort of impose its authority on them. Many, many years ago, I took an undergraduate uh, course, not on the French Revolution, but on the Russian Revolution. And I always remembered uh, Professor Martin Melia, the instructor, 
uh, telling us that for a revolution to happen, it's not enough for there to be an oppressed population that wants to uh, overthrow uh, the government. The government also has to lose the control of the uh, tools that enable it to stay in power, and especially the military. The storming of the Bastille is the moment when that happens in the French Revolution. But there are lots of troops outside of Paris. Um, there sure, are. Those but, could... uh, at that point, uh, Louis the uh, um military commanders tell him, we don't dare send the uh, soldiers into Paris. They're likely to take the side of the people. Uh-huh. So it's the Bastille, the storming of the Bastille, that not only the, the people realize their own power, uh, yeah, the yeah, king and the nobles exactly realize right. the people's power. And uh, I, I guess that's the moment where there is not going to be any um, despot. At this point, we're sort of we're in a, a, a track towards constitutional monarchy. Yes. The other thing that's remarkable about the French Revolution, uh, you have the storming of the Bastille, uh, you have Paris more or less in the hands of an angry crowd, but you have this National Assembly, which is meeting in Versailles, uh, 20 miles outside of Paris, that is uh, prepared to step in and say, uh, uh, here we are, we are the representatives of the people, we're ready to take this opportunity to create a new government and a government that will satisfy the demands of the people. And they managed to get the popular movement behind them. Uh, And it's the coming together of those two things, the uh, deputies with their plans for a new constitution based on liberty and equality, and the popular movement that you might say provides the muscle to uh, allow the deputies to succeed. That's what really uh, enables the French Revolution uh, to overthrow the old system. And then we have uh, later in that year, uh, perhaps even more, to my mind, radical event, uh, the bringing of the royal family from Versailles to Paris. Yes, yes. Could you describe that? I mean, it's a famous a famous episode known as the October Days. Uh, it's uh, particularly striking because it shows the power of women in the uh, yes. politics of the revolutionary era. Uh, It starts out as a march of the poor women of Paris who are protesting about uh, food prices, and uh, they insist that they are going to march from Paris to the royal palace in Versailles and uh, compel uh, the king and the National Assembly to do something about their problems. And uh, when they get to Versailles, they are able to... uh, intimidate the king and the assembly into agreeing to move to Paris. And once uh, Louis XVI uh, and Marie Antoinette have uh, moved from uh, the safety of Versailles to uh, the palace of the Tuileries in the middle of Paris, uh, they are subject to the pressure of the Paris population. Uh, They're in much greater danger, much more vulnerable than they were as long as they were still at Versailles. So that's a, an important turning point in the revolution. Uh, I wouldn't put it on the same level as the storming of the Bastille, but I certainly wanted to make sure that readers understood its importance. But but surely it's uh, in some ways, it, it's the reversal of the entire royal policy for 100 years. Uh, oh, to, oh, yeah. Uh, to yeah, minimize absolutely. Paris's importance, to minimize actually, to, to bring nobles to Versailles, to 
as it were, subjugate them um, to make them use up their money uh, renting places there. That the yeah. all of Louis XIV's policy and the Bourbon since has been to to relativize Paris and relativize right. the ability outside that's of Paris. Right. Uh, that's right. Louis XIV had uh, been very uh, wary of being too close to uh, the population in Paris. Louis XVI then found himself involuntarily uh, surrounded by the people of Paris again, and that, of course, was going to lead to his downfall two years mm -hmm. later. Exactly as his was great grandfather might have predicted, I suppose, or the great grandfather. Uh, yeah, that's remember. right. That's right. Um, and the um, and, and, and in many ways, it's it's interesting. It's it's um, it confirms that in the Republic or at what comes later in Paris, that Paris will all uh, later in France is that Paris will always be culturally supreme. Will never be France. Will never be never has a possibility to become a nation of regions if it ever did. But uh, no, uh, but that domination of Paris uh, already um, uh, had been kind of institutionalized under the monarchy. The king may have been in yes. Versailles, but actually the working parts of the government and uh, all of the cultural activities in France and the uh, economic center of the country uh, were all kind of centralized in Paris. And that's another aspect of the uh, French Revolution when uh, so much is centralized in one place. Whoever controls that capital city uh, really mm. controls the destiny of the country. Uh, as you know, I'm talking to you at the moment uh, from uh, Berlin in Germany. And if we look at the history of Germany, it took much, much longer uh, for there to be a, a centralized capital city that could exercise that kind of influence. Even today, uh, Berlin is the political center of the country, but uh, Frankfurt is the financial capital, mm -hmm. and uh, Munich and Hamburg and other big German cities are in some ways uh, uh, more or less on the same footing as Berlin. Paris is very different. There's no other yes. city in uh, France that comes close to it. Yes. Um, let's go back to this subject of, of women at the October days, but then uh, mm -hmm. going forward as well. Well, yes. even at the best, even at the bestie, anyone who reads Dickens has a certain uh, certain uh, begins to see a certain prejudice towards the role of women uh, by yes. sort of counter revolutionary forces. But that's also mirrored by then a sort of hagiography of certain women on the revolutionary forces. Mm -hmm. the, the, the point to me is, I mean, someone who knows uh, a lot about the American Revolution is that women have an extraordinarily important role, uh, both in propaganda, but also uh, actually on the, on the ground uh, throughout yeah. the French Revolution. Yeah, that's an aspect of the history of the French Revolution that has really uh, been brought to uh, light in the um, past 30 years and that uh, was drawing on the research of my many very talented colleagues in the field who have uh, worked on the, this subject. Uh, over the course of uh, my career, uh, 40 or 50 years ago, a book like the one I've just written about the French Revolution probably would have said almost nothing about the role of women. Uh, now, I have hoped to show readers that they were involved in uh, every aspect of the revolution. Uh, they were involved in all the mass uprisings, the storming of the Bastille, the October days, the uh, other so-called journée of the revolution. Uh, they were critical in uh, the religious conflict uh, where many of them uh, 
defend the uh, old unreformed uh, Catholic Church and uh, help uh, limit the revolutionary success in trying to transform the church. Uh, there are individual women who play important public roles. I've mentioned uh, Marie Antoinette already, but uh, there were women on the side of the revolution. Uh, Olympe de Gouges, who writes a Declaration of the Rights of Women in 1791, that has become a kind of uh, classic uh, articulation of the case for women's rights. Uh, Madame Roland, who's a very intelligent uh, operator behind the scene uh, in the Jacobin movement. Uh, Madame de Stael, who is a wealthier, uh, more elitist uh, woman who's very important uh, in a number of periods of the revolution, especially after uh, Thermidor. Uh, so um, I wanted to introduce these uh, important uh, female characters into the story and uh, show that uh, they are present at every step in the revolution and involved in every aspect of it. What, um, in the next, the next phase, how, how do we get out of the sort of, as it were, the constitutional monarchy phase of the revolution? Um, eventually, eventually that will end with the execution of Louis the Sixteenth, but we've moved uh, long before that away from that phase of the revolution. Yeah. So how does that phase end? Well, we see a process of polarization starting uh, within a few months of what I referred to as the high point of optimism uh, that you might put in uh, August of 1789. Uh, we see the um, issue of the reform of the church and the expropriation of the church lands, for example, uh, setting in motion a very deep conflict between uh, loyal those who were loyal to the Catholic Church and thought that this was an attack on their faith, and those whose priority was the success of the revolution and uh, thought that it was the duty of the uh, Catholic Church to make sacrifices in order to let the uh, revolution succeed. And that's connected very much to the um, attitude toward the king, uh, because he is one of those uh, Catholics who uh, comes to see the revolution as incompatible with uh, his religious faith. That's one of the things that's going to drive him to uh, try to make his escape from Paris in June of 1791. <clears throat> and that is going to make it clear to many of the revolutionaries uh, that uh, he could no longer be trusted. Uh, under the constitutional monarchy, he was still theoretically the commander-in-chief of the armed forces, for example, and the idea that you might have a commander-in-chief uh, who had tried to flee the country and take refuge in, a, uh, in the territory of a hostile enemy power uh, was extremely disturbing. And as I try to explain to readers in the book, uh, this has the paradoxical effect of making the more radical revolutionaries demand a declaration of war against that foreign power, Austria, even though they know that uh, this means having a king they don't trust as the theoretical commander in chief. Uh, some of them like uh, Jacques-Pierre Brissot think that's a good thing. His treasonous uh, activities will become clear and then we'll be able to remove him. And if some of this sounds like contemporary politics in uh, another country we may be familiar with, that's <laughs> not accidental. <laughs> yeah. So it, the apprehension of the king as he tries and the queen as they try to flee, um, yes. this begins and also the wars 
Well, eventually, like with the rest of Europe. That's right. And then the levee en masse, the, there's this draft, which brings yeah. some, which creates these in, immense armies that uh, whose size uh, was unprecedented. Um, and, yes, this, and if I can go back to what yeah. I said about Rousseau, who is a uh, figure who I have uh, studied a great deal because he's also connected with the uh, campaign against slavery, which we'll want to talk about, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, but um, he correctly predicts that uh, the war will radicalize the revolution. If you are going to have to call on uh, so many ordinary men to serve in the uh, army, uh, you are also going to have to uh, give them more uh, full political rights. And uh, so he sees a connection between uh, war and democracy. Hmm. Yeah, Napoleon would be curious by that. Um, but there is certainly, uh, we can see that Napoleon's uh, marshals are men whom he ennobles who come from very humble backgrounds. Many, um, yeah, they, many, of them, uh, many of them start out as ordinary soldiers in the Revolutionary yeah. Army. And so we see that social mobility working its way all the way through it to the empire itself. Um, yes, that's right. And we've got this also this this thing which always happens in revolutions, uh, where the radical of the first phase becomes the reactionary of the second phase. Um, yes. People. Uh, so could you give a couple names? I'm mean, Lafayette's the obvious um, example of that. Americans uh, so, often often want to know uh, why wasn't Lafayette a hero in uh, the French Revolution? Uh, I uh, live in Lexington, Kentucky, which is located in Fayette County, Kentucky, named in his honor. Uh, but in the French Revolution, uh, he plays a, a much less uh, heroic role. Uh, he is a noble himself. Uh, he's a reform-minded noble, but uh, he is not a um, advocate of uh, a democracy. Uh, he is uh, always trying to find a way to preserve some aspects of the uh, constitutional monarchy. And uh, as a result, he finds himself uh, deeply compromised and distrusted by the uh, more radical revolutionaries uh, like Brissot. Lafayette only survives the revolution. Uh, uh, because he uh, has the great good fortune to be captured by the Austrians and kept in prison during the Reign of Terror, uh, and eventually uh, gets exchanged for uh, one of the uh, members of the royal family who had survived the Reign of Terror, and that's what enables him to lead a long and uh, basically happy life long after the revolution. And he's not the only person who gets um, I mean, if, if the if, if if France had remained a constitutional monarchy, he'd be a hero, but it didn't. Um, um, yeah, he might be. Although um, he he was distrusted by everybody, uh, the royalists no. were always convinced that uh, he was plotting to make himself sort of the Oliver Cromwell of the French Revolution yeah. and take the real power behind the throne. And uh, the radicals were convinced that he was plotting to restore the powers of the king. Yeah, no, it's, it's he is he's caught between stools, but the he's an, he's one of many who the revolution moves on without them, or it goes yeah, it goes right. in different directions, uh, with to which they're not prepared to go, or they go in different directions, and the revolution doesn't follow. Yes, Brissot is another striking example of that. Uh, 
at the time when he pushes for the declaration of war in the spring of 1792, uh, he's the most visible and most vocal radical revolutionary leader. And uh, barely a year later, uh, he is arrested uh, by Robespierre and the more radical radicals, and uh, of course winds up being uh, guillotined shortly afterward. So that that does th- thank thank you for bringing up that important noun, which uh, people will want to hear at least uh, several times in this recording. Uh, guillotine. Um, guillotine. We yes. are we we are at the end of the at, at the con- with the fall of the constitutional monarchy. We have what you characterize as the second revolution. Uh, yeah. What happens, and is there a straight line between that and the reign of terror, um, or not? Uh, yes, there certainly is. Uh, what happens, uh, uh, the war begins in April of 1792. Uh, optimists like Rousseau have predicted that it will be a smashing success, that the populations of the uh, other countries of Europe will rise up and overthrow their own governments, and uh, the troops will be home by Christmas, so to speak. Uh, but that does not happen. Instead, the uh, enemy armies penetrate deep into France, and by uh, the beginning of August 1792, they are only a few days' march away from Paris. At that point, uh, you have a a planned uprising, uh, not like the storming of the Bastille, which is kind of improvised uh, uprising, but the uh, insurrection of the 10th of August 1792 uh, is a planned uprising to... uh, uh, force the uh, deposition of the king and to replace the um, assembly that's been meeting with one that's elected on a more democratic basis to take emergency measures to uh, save the country. So the idea that uh, the situation of the country is so desperate that it justifies uh, any kind of measures, including disregarding the freedoms supposedly guaranteed in the Declaration of Rights, uh, arises during this crisis in the summer of 1792. What, um, what leads to the guillotine? Um, what, what does, does Robespierre, uh, at least I, what little I've read of his writings, mm-hmm. does he not believe that terror is the way of purifying the body politic? Um, he does violence? eventually defend that position, uh, but uh, earlier in the revolution, uh, he had uh, proposed abolishing the death penalty. Huh. So uh, he was not originally an advocate of the guillotine. And uh, anybody who studies the French Revolution realizes the irony that the guillotine was intended as a uh, humanitarian reform. Uh, prior to the revolution, when people were condemned to be executed, the idea was uh, they should really suffer as much as possible before they mm-hmm. died. And uh, there were all kinds of gruesome punishments that were still being used in the 18th century. And uh, the man who de- designed the guillotine, who was not actually Dr. Guillotin, for whom it is named, uh, the idea was to have a way of executing people if you had to do it uh, that would be uh, so quick as to be uh, virtually painless, and uh, that uh, would make the whole process much more humane. We, of course, are still having debates in uh, the United States where we still have the death penalty uh, about how can you simultaneously put uh, condemned people to death without imposing physical suffering on them. But as we know, the guillotine also becomes a symbol of the uh, 
excesses of the extremities to which the revolutionary government goes, uh, the uh, steadily widening uh, list of crimes for which you can be considered an enemy of the revolution and put to death uh, is one of the characteristics of the reign of terror. And uh, Robespierre does, in one of his most famous uh, speeches at the end of 1793, uh, justify the use of terror. He says, uh, if you don't terrify the people who are plotting against the revolution, uh, you will never be able uh, to defeat them. And does this, um, am I wrong in thinking the guillotine was also a symbol to revolutionaries themselves? Yes, uh, they were not at all uh, embarrassed about it. It's one of the um, striking features of the French Revolution that uh, the revolutionaries thought that the punishment of guilty people should be as public as possible, uh, that spectators should be able to watch, that uh, there was nothing uh, shameful about this. There, it's very different from the way uh, executions are carried out in the United States nowadays, where it's all behind uh, closed doors. And uh, for many of the supporters of the revolution, then the uh, guillotine was uh, something they took great pride in, uh, that uh, it made it clear that the enemies of the revolution would uh, be made to suffer if they didn't stop their activities. So we have the, the curious um, fact that here amidst the this uh, revolutionary fervor for the execution of enemies of the state, we also have a very substantive and important debate over the nature of slavery. Um, yes. I, I was, it went on for a lot longer than I thought it did. Um, and I was really astonished. I hadn't realized that there was so much opposition to it from people, from uh, representatives from within France itself. Uh, yes. If you, if you had asked me uh, what happened, make a guess, I'd say, well, I suppose colonial interests, people with interests in the sugar um, plantations are going to be against any sort of abolition. That's going to be mm -hmm. clear. Um, those it's probably people from Nantes, uh, Bordeaux, any any port that has uh, communication with the Caribbean. But why yeah. would someone from Alsace be against abolition? That I I can't figure out now. So could you describe yeah. a little bit about the debate and the sort of contours of it? Yeah, well the uh, the colonies were an extremely important part of the uh, French economy in the uh, 18th century, and uh, thousands of people who had never been to the colonies, who had never seen an enslaved person, nevertheless were economically uh, tied into uh, the success of the colonial economy. Uh, I quote in the book uh, sometimes from the diaries and letters of uh, ordinary people who lived uh, during the revolution. Uh, one of them is a man with a very odd name, uh, Celestin Guitard de Floriban, uh, which sounds very fancy, but uh, he's an elderly gentleman. Uh, who has never been to the colonies and who lives in uh, a provincial city in uh, France and later in Paris. But uh, as a way of investing his money, he has lent uh, money to a uh, somebody who owns a plantation in uh, Saint-Domingue, the main French colony, which is today uh, Haiti. And uh, when the uh, uprising against slavery breaks out there, uh, Mr. Uh, uh, Guitar de Floribin suddenly realizes that his retirement savings have gone up in flames. And I don't mention this in the book, but his debtor eventually gets back to Paris 
uh, and explains to uh, Itard de Florban that, first of all, he's lost all his money. And while he is at it, this debtor succeeds in seducing uh, poor Guitard de Floribin's girlfriend also. <laughs> so if people are invested in it and they wish to people defer are invested, their investments. People, are, people who are far away from the coast yeah. are nevertheless uh, manufacturing goods that are sold in the colonies. Uh, one of the big, big markets for the ribbon makers of the industrial city of Saint-Étienne, for example, uh, is the Caribbean colonies where the uh, women of color are especially good customers for these uh, products. But surely that would be the case even after abolition. Well, that wasn't uh, so clear. Uh, it wasn't clear that uh, slavery was abolished, that uh, the freed blacks would actually uh, constitute a consumer market for uh, French products. And indeed, uh, when Haiti becomes independent, uh, they stop importing goods from mm -hmm. France on a large scale. But even, uh, uh, I've been telling individual stories, but uh, almost everybody in France was convinced that the uh, colonies were essential to the prosperity of the economy, that if France lost its colonies, Britain would be the great winner. Uh, they would uh, take over the markets for sugar and coffee, and uh, France's international standing in the world would be demolished. So even people who had no tangible economic stake themselves in the uh, colonies could not easily imagine a world in which uh, France did not have colonies and in which slave labor did not exist to make those colonies profitable. So the revolution has swept away many things, but not mercantilism. No. Hmm. So how does the debate, how, how eventually does abolition succeed? Well, it succeeds when uh, you have a sort of civil war that breaks out in the main colony of Saint-Domingue. You have a black population that uh, rises up and revolts against slavery. Uh, the French uh, revolutionaries and the king work together at first to try to crush that revolt. But uh, eventually, in 1793, the revolutionary officials who have been sent over there realize uh, either we grant freedom to the black population and enlist them to fight on our side, or we are going to be, uh, we're going to lose the colonies to the British, the Spanish, and the white colonists. And so uh, the two officials, Sontenax and Polverel, take the very radical decision to uh, offer freedom uh, mm -hmm. to the uh, enslaved blacks in the colony, to all of them. Uh, and uh, when word gets back to uh, France several months later about what has happened in Saint-Domingue, uh, the National Convention finds itself forced to make a choice. Do we uh, accept what has happened? Do we proclaim that we back the uh, granting of freedom to uh, the blacks? Or uh, do we oppose it? And in that case, almost certainly lose total, lose total totally lose control of the colony. So it's not purely out of idealism that the National Convention votes on the 4th of February, 1794, uh, to abolish slavery in the French colonies. But nevertheless, they do vote, and they not only abolish slavery, but they declare the blacks to be French citizens. They seat uh, a couple of black representatives as members of the uh, National Convention. All of this 70 years before the Emancipation Proclamation 
here in the United States. So it really is a major event in the uh, struggle against slavery. And it, it, it is undone not that long after in under Napoleon, correct? Napoleon, one of the ways in which Napoleon tries to reverse the uh, thrust of the revolution toward more liberty and equality is to reinstate slavery in the French colonies. He's able to do that in the smaller colonies, but uh, Saint-Domingue, which was uh, by far the most important, there the black population succeeds in defeating Napoleon's army and creating the independent country of Haiti. Right. So uh, before we, uh, we need to want to move on, but before we do that, you were interested, uh, I think your first book is on newspapers and the revolution. Um, New media, yes. <laughs> yes. And so you were very interested then in reading critics of the revolution. So could you describe a few sort of internal critics um, and, and how long did they survive? Well, there is always uh, opposition to the revolution at every uh, period, uh, and uh, they make a number of uh, important criticisms of the revolution. Uh, there is a, a, a stream of a thread of criticism, you might say, uh, that is critical of uh, the re uh, revolutionary leaders because they aren't consistent enough in uh, supporting uh, democracy and uh, equality. And uh, in uh, my new book, I've emphasized the journalists who write under the name of the Père Duchesne, a pseudonym, uh, who <laughs> represent a kind of uh, populist uh, attack on the, what they see as the elitist uh, tendencies of the revolution. But there are also uh, conservatives who say uh, the principles of the revolution sound very good, but uh, a functioning society can't actually be based on uh, the idea of everybody having equal rights, you need uh, systems of authority, uh, you need uh, common beliefs that have been supplied in the past by uh, religion of the Catholic Church, uh, you need an independent uh, executive branch like a monarch, and uh, often these critics do make uh, serious points about why uh, the uh, revolutionaries' attempts to create a new world uh, could run into some very serious difficulties. Mm -hmm. um, let's uh, talk about um, Napoleon very briefly. You've already indicated that um, you don't agree with those who see him basically as continuing much of the revolutionary um, direction. Uh, what ways did he not, what, what parts of the French Revolution did he not destroy or remove? Well, he does uh, maintain the, uh, the legal uh, uh, sense of uh, equality. Uh, under him, he says there will not be a uh, privileged hereditary monarchy anymore. Uh, he does um, maintain the expropriation of the church lands, and uh, while he brings back uh, Catholic worship, the uh, church will never be a powerful independent institution again the way it was under uh, the monarchy. Uh, and of course, he continues the aggressive nationalism that we associate with the uh, French Revolution and uh, its war policy. Uh, and uh, uh, that's an important aspect of the revolution that continues and even uh, increases under Napoleon. Mm -hmm. What um, let's turn to sort of the historiography of, of the revolution uh, very briefly. Okay. Um, there, 
uh, have been competing schools of thought on the revolution since the first, uh, probably, or at least the second book of history of the revolution, the second history of the revolution was yes. published, uh, which must have been very soon after it was over. Well, um, people and, were writing its history while it was going on. In fact. Yeah, sure. Um, so you very thankfully for the reader do not say do not say things like well as Sobul has said or as Lefebvre argued or we so the historiographical debates are that that you're mm -hmm. engaging in are probably always in the background uh, in the footnotes. Um, uh, at, well, I was even told uh, I was even told by my editor at uh, Basic Books don't put them in the footnotes. So. Uh, <laughs> Insider will have a field day uh, deciphering uh, where they uh, show up. Uh, just as I have tried to be fair-minded toward uh, the uh, participants in the French Revolution, I have also, I hope, uh, been fair-minded toward the many uh, uh, differing historians who have worked on it, and I have learned important things about the revolution from uh, scholars with all kinds of uh, varying points of view about it. Uh, so I didn't want to write a one-sided uh, history of the revolution. And uh, as I say, I've been prepared to take insights from many different uh, schools of the revolution. Uh, but um, I did not agree with the uh, important thread in revolutionary historiography that sees the uh, revolution as essentially predetermined to fail and to wind up in uh, creating a, a dictatorial regime. That is an interpretation that you could say goes back to uh, the most brilliant of all historians of the revolution, the 19th century French writer, Alexis de Tocqueville. And uh, Tocqueville has many very profound insights about the revolution, but uh, he was convinced that uh, what the revolution really achieved uh, despite all of its rhetoric about uh, liberty and equality, uh, was simply to create a stronger, more centralized system of government than the uh, old monarchy. Hmm. Um, and I also uh, did not buy into uh, the uh, notion that the sole explanation of the revolution is the uh, economic interests of the different social classes that existed in France at that time. This was the classic interpretation of the French Revolution by the uh, great 20th century French historians, uh, Georges Lefebvre, Albert Mathieu, and uh, Albert Soboul. Uh, but it really doesn't hold up in the face of a lot of the uh, empirical evidence uh, nowadays. On the other hand, I did find myself um, paying more attention to uh, the role of economic debates during the revolution than has been common in the historiography of the last 30 years, uh, which has emphasized the cultural aspects of the movement in works by uh, scholars such as Mono Zouf, uh, Lynn Hunt, uh, and uh, Timothy Tackett. Uh, to go back to uh, Jean-Marie uh, uh, um, Jean Goujon, for example, uh, he starts out as a revolutionary, essentially for idealistic reasons. He is kind of carried away by the rhetoric of the revolution, but he becomes a local administrator uh, in a part of rural France, and he finds uh, himself dealing on a daily basis with the problem of uh, finding enough grain to keep the uh, population fed, keeping the 
inflation that has been unleashed by the revolution under control. Uh, and that's what propels him onto uh, the national stage. And some of these debates about uh, uh, regulation of the economy versus the uh, idea that every individual should have uh, freedom to use their uh, energies in whatever economic way they want uh, echo with debates we have in our own society about so-called neoliberal policies uh, versus uh, a greater extent of government regulation. Mm-hmm. Um, it was striking to me as I thought about this is that I suppose that modern historical research is really driven by the study of certain great revolutions and the French Revolution foremost among them. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, von Ranke was greatly interested in the Protestant Reformation. It's another revolution of a kind. Yeah. Uh, medieval studies was powered by the study of the papal revolutions of the 11th, 11th century, the so-called um, investiture controversies, which are much more than that. Yeah. Uh, American history uh, would not have any gas in its tank without the American Revolution. That's um, right. In many ways, French revolution, the study of the French Revolution creates modern history. Is that yes, I too extreme? That, I, think I don't think it is. Definitely true. Uh, it challenges people, and uh, Tocqueville is one of the most intelligent who takes up that challenge uh, to explain how such a thing could happen, how yeah. uh, history could seem to suddenly swerve out of its path so uh, dramatically. And uh, so it is a real challenge to thinkers about uh, is it possible to break with the past the way the French revolutionaries wanted to, or does the past, so to speak, always get its revenge in the end, as uh, thinkers like Ed Burke had uh, argued at the time of the revolution. Yeah. Um, What do you see as the um, greatest, most lasting legacy? Of the French Revolution, would it be? Would I be right in thinking that you, you see it as the Declaration of the Rights of Man? Every time I reread the words of the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen, uh, I can't help thinking that uh, none of our modern ideas about uh, democracy and social equality would have been defined so sharply if it hadn't been for the uh, impact of that document of the movement that uh, gave rise to it. Uh, At the same time, uh, as I show in the book, uh, the Declaration uh, raised uh, questions that the deputies who drafted it hadn't uh, intended, and uh, those include uh, the question of whether the rights they were talking about uh, belonged to women as well as men, whether they uh, belonged to black uh, enslaved blacks in the colonies as well as to white people, uh, to what extent... uh, people had freedom to oppose uh, the French Revolution. So I think all the debates of uh, the modern political world we live in, uh, you can see their origins in that one document. My guest today has been Jeremy D. Popkin. He's the author of A New World Begins, The History of the French Revolution. It's out now from Basic Books. Professor Popkin, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. 
For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Ruddat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. Thank you.